Well, good afternoon. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy, excuse me, chapter 6. It is Father's Day. And with that comes a wave of emotion for many in the room. Didn't have my father. But something that comforted me was that now what came to Jesus, I got a father in heaven. And what I love about God as father is he is very clear being a dad myself now, sometimes we dads, we can be very vague, amen? We leave our kids guessing to what we're thinking, perhaps even our spouses. But God the Father is clear. In our sermon text this afternoon, God, through Timothy's spiritual father, Paul, tells Timothy, and I believe, by extension, all pastors, and even church members who follow their pastors. God tells Timothy what he ought to do, excuse me, what he ought not to do, but he also tells him what he ought to do. And he even tells him how long he ought to do it. And I trust we'll see that as we read. I'm reading from the ESV, 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, when his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unsaned and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him, the honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we come to you in the sweet name of Jesus, again asking that you would help us to see your beloved Son. Oh, help us to see him clearly. Through your word. Would you give us a word this afternoon? Oh, for we are indeed hungry and we want to eat. Oh, Jesus, now is your time to shine. Would you get much glory in this place? In your name, amen. Our sermon in a sentence, if you will. The man of God must intentionally flee worldliness and pursue a life of faithfulness to the gospel 
and fight to maintain a life of faithfulness to the gospel until Christ returns. To my fellow pastors, if you and I are to live out the title of this sermon series and be faithful to the gospel, we must intentionally flee worldliness and pursue a life of faithfulness to the gospel and fight to maintain a life of faithfulness to the gospel until Christ returns. We'll look at four, uh, we'll look at Paul's four commands or characteristics he gives to Timothy, his son in the faith, and then we'll see Paul's encouragement to obey these commands, to live out these characteristics, as well as the length of time Timothy and even us is required to obey. The first command, a characteristic of the man of God, is to flee these things, flee these things. Beginning in verse 11, Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Paul gives Timothy the honor of being called a man of God. This is the only time such an honor is specifically bestowed upon a New Testament saint, but one that was often used of Old Testament leaders like Moses and King David to set them apart for the work of God. They were saints. They were holy. And Paul here is identifying Timothy as a man of God. He's linking him to God and not to the things of this world. And because Timothy's identity is tied to God, Paul is now calling him to live in light of his identity. If you're God's man, and you, Timothy, you are. You must flee these things. These things refer to the previous verses that was in our sermon text last week. Timothy, the man of God, you must flee from teaching different doctrines. You must flee from unhealthy cravings for controversy and quarrels. You know, it's interesting how many TV shows nowadays, there's just frivolous debates. It's not just mere sports. People pick topics, random frivolous topics, meaningless topics, and they debate them. Millions upon millions of people watch them. Those are things that the man of God must flee. You must flee from discontentment. You must flee, Timothy, O man of God, from the love of money. Or as our pastor Brian summed it up last week, Timothy, pastors, Christians in the room, we must flee from the thought that Christ is not enough. We must flee from the thought that Christ is not enough. The temptations to think that if we only had more, if we only had more money, if we only had our building in Uptown, if our kids would always obey, if everyone I talked to would listen to me, if, 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 oh, flee the ifs, man of God, Flee discontentment. Christ is enough. Amen? Flee these things. Paul, being a good spiritual father, 
And as is custom throughout all his letters, he doesn't just tell Timothy to run, what to run from. He tells him, and he tells pastors what to run to. The man of God, the leaders of the church, and thus everyone who follows them must, commandment number two, pursue a life that is faithful to the gospel. Run from these things, run to these things. And Paul gives six characteristics or virtues that Timothy was to devote himself in order to show himself faithful to the gospel. Paul says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. While these aren't the entire virtues of the Christian life, we know Galatians 5 tells us of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's nine. And here we have six. Uh, Paul is trying to articulate to us that the life of a true Christian, a true man of God, perhaps on this day we could even say a, a good father, that he must pursue these things, these virtues, in order to remain faithful to the gospel. Let's take a brief look at each one of them and then comment. Paul says, if you want to remain faithful to the gospel, you must pursue righteousness. Righteousness is simply that. It's right living before, the God, before God. To be a man of God, to be set apart for God, one must pursue righteousness. He must pursue a right living. And we get our right living from the book. So the man of God must be in the book that he might know how to live in accordance to the book and therefore live righteously. But no one can do that apart from Christ. Romans tells us there's, that no one does good, no, not one. Isaiah tells us before Christ, all our righteous deeds, all of our righteousness is filthy rags in the eyes of God. And so the only way to pursue righteousness is to be grafted into the one who himself is righteous. And so when Paul calls Timothy, Timothy excuse me, to pursue righteousness, I believe it's really a call pursue Christ. And as Timothy pursues Christ, he will become righteous in the sight of God, and he will do righteousness. He will live righteously. You become what you behold. You look like what you follow. And if you pursue the righteous Jesus, you will do righteousness. So flee these things, pursue righteousness, but two, he says, if you want to be faithful to the gospel, you must pursue godliness. Last week, Pastor Brian helped us see that godliness is living under the banner that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Paul tells us earlier in Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus lived a godly life. He was holy and righteous. 
And all he did was perfect in the eyes of the Father. And we know this. We know this. We know that he was perfect, that he was righteous, that he was godly, because he was vindicated by the Spirit when he rose from the dead. His life and his person is the epitome of godliness. So to pursue the virtue of godliness is, in essence, to pursue Christ himself. Timothy can flee a life of covetousness because he can run to Christ, who is enough. Timothy, and by extension, you and I, can flee a life of controversy and quarrelsome debate because we know that sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him and talking to him, his word, is enough conversation for us. Timothy can flee the love of money because he can be content in the love of Christ. I'm going to say it again for my own soul. Timothy can flee the love of money because he can be content in the love of Christ. Call to godliness is a call to Christ. Pastors in the room. If you're to remain faithful to the gospel, you must flee these things. And by faith, pursue a life of godliness. Pursue Christ himself. Third, Paul says to Timothy, pursue faith. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, and number three, faith. Pursue faith. Faith in God, faith in his word, faith in God's promises. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Paul says to pursue faith, but we don't just pursue faith for the sake of faith, but we must pursue Christ the object of our faith, the man of God, the faithful pastor, you could say the faithful husband, father, the Christian. If you remain faithful to the gospel, you must continue to faith in Christ. And the reality that he is enough for you. When the budget doesn't add up, pursue faith. When your kids aren't listening, pursue faith. When your marriage is rocky, pursue faith. When you and the boss don't see eye to eye, pursue faith. Pastor, when the congregant isn't quite listening to you, oh, would you pursue faith? When all hope seems lost, pursue faith. But above all else, pursue Christ, the object of our faith. For pursuing anything outside of him will hinder you, will hinder you, will hinder you in your faithfulness to the gospel and leading your house in the household of God. If you want to pursue, if you want to live a life faithful to the gospel, number four, he says, pursue love. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love. Faith and love, they typically blend together. Paul says in Galatians, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. 
the NLT renders that same passage in Galatians 5, 6. It says this, what is important is faith expressing itself in love. Often someone up here preaches, often says, we don't work for our faith, we work from it. And here in Galatians, Paul says that our faith in Christ works itself out through our love to Christ and to one another. And the man of God, the pastor, and every Christian in the room, we ought not to pursue controversies, debates with one another. We ought to flee these things and pursue love to one another. Ask yourself, what are ways you can love members of this body? Members in the room, and members you might have not have seen in a while. By faith, love, love. And it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways, the more our love for Christ grows, the more love for his people will grow. Pursue love. Fifth, if you want to remain fit, have a life that is faithful to the gospel, pursue, Paul tells Pastor Timothy, to pursue steadfastness. Pursue steadfastness. The Christian life, the life of a pastor, a man of God, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Now, by nature, I'm a sprinter. It's what I did in high school. It's what I coach. Uh, my wife, she's seen me sprint as a teacher. Uh, Sister Angie, Beck and Gigi, they see me sprint. Uh, camp director last few weeks. I'm a sprinter. It's, it's what I like to do. I like to go fast. I like to in, out. It's over. No race longer than 20 seconds. Maybe 23. I've not done a physical marathon and don't plan on it. But from what I've been told, there are peaks and valleys in the race. There are times when things are going according to plan and times when you, you just can't go any further. And in that marathon, there's a call to steadfastness, to perseverance. It's a virtue that says, come what may, I won't quit, I won't give up. It doesn't matter who comes through that door, I will defend the gospel. Regardless of how the culture is moving, oh, it is moving. By the grace of God and the spirit of God, on the authority of the word of God, I'll defend the gospel. I'll remain faithful to the end. So many church leaders are being tossed to and fro, are giving in to the culture, are giving in to what man says. They're abandoning the ship, as it were, to my brothers in arms, my fellow pastors again, men of God. Don't leave the ship. 
pursue steadfastness. Consider these lyrics as grace that we often sing. But I don't know about you, but I need them for my soul. When I fear, my faith will fail. And some of you can finish the lyric. Christ will hold me fast. Are you worshiping? When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He, he, Christ, must hold me fast. Two comments, and then we'll keep moving. One, resolve, resolve to not let your love be cold. Pursue love. It's the one that came before it. Love to Christ and to his body. And two, stay on the ship. Stay on the ship. Be steadfast. It's a marathon. But also I want you to take comfort in Christ, the anchor who will indeed hold you fast. You must be steadfast, but you can take comfort and you can worship that Christ will hold you fast. He'll hold you down. The last of the pursuits, if you're to be faithful to the gospel, is gentleness. This is a meekness, a posture of humility. In just about every passage that has this word in the New Testament, the word is used in a sense to seek to with all patience and care, win someone back. Where the man who has a fault in Galatians 6, or those that oppose themselves in 2 Timothy, we'll get there later. And in this passage, Paul probably has in mind here those who are uh, false teachers in the church in Ephesus. Timothy and all church leaders shouldn't be looking to cause quarrels, but to end them. Pastors, we shouldn't be seeking to bring dissension and constant friction among us, as described in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, but we should seek to bring peace. And it's a spirit of gentleness that brings about such peace. It's a spirit of gentleness that Timothy and all men of God and women of God must pursue. And yet I can't help myself. We're to pursue gentleness. But is Christ himself not the one who is gentle and lowly? Did he not say in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A call to gentleness, friends. It's a call to Christ, the most gentle servant among us. And fellow elders, if we are to remain faithful to the gospel, we must pursue him. Full stop. No questions, no hesitations. We must pursue the gentle Savior Christ himself. I trust you see the application, but quick word, I trust it's clear. How do we flee 
the things of the previous section and how do we pursue righteousness, godliness, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We must pursue Jesus. We must talk to him and make time for him to talk to us through his word. We must, as John 15 tells us, let his words abide in us. And when we do, we will want what he wants. John 15, verse 7, if you abide in me, Jesus says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. As we read and meditate on his word, we'll want to live righteously. We want to be godly. We'll want to have faith and love, steadfastness and gentleness. And we'll ask for those things. And Christ will love to give them to us. If Timothy is to be faithful to the gospel, Paul tells him to flee some things and pursue some things, namely Christ. But he also calls Timothy to fight. The man of God must intentionally flee worldliness and pursue a life of faithfulness to the gospel and fight to maintain a life of faithfulness to the gospel until Christ returns. Look at verse 12 with me. Fight the good fight of the faith. This charge by Paul, Timothy's spiritual father, is in essence the same fight Paul charged Timothy with back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, when Paul says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Basically really reiterates the same thing. In chapter, it was in chapter 1 and now in chapter 6, a charge to be faithful to the gospel. A charge to fight for the gospel and to see to it that some in the church at Ephesus were pastors. Do not teach anything contrary to the gospel. It's a fight for the souls of men. Paul was to win and to protect the souls entrusted to his care from the false teachers, but also to win over the false teachers themselves. And pastors, men of God, we have the same call to fight. Going further in chapter 6, I believe the fight refers not only to fighting false teachers and protecting the flock, but it's also to live in such a way that is faithful to the gospel. Paul says here that it's a fight, that Timothy is to fight for his own spiritual holiness. Now the word used here for fight is perhaps slightly different than the one used in chapter 1. Chapter 1, Paul is referencing military combat, that of warfare. Here the word seems to be in connection with the Olympic Games, in which one is competing, perhaps wrestling or boxing. Anyone that's ever performed in athletics, your opponent typically, they don't just roll over. They're going to come back at you. And Paul is exhorting his son in the faith to fight 
the enemy to fight for his local church. Timothy was to fight to preserve the gospel against false teachers. Pastors, you too, you must fight. We must fight to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world is seeking to creep in here uh, and win. I didn't make it to everything of this afternoon's parenting session, but social media is seeking to creep in and defeat our children. And we must fight to win our children who are being enticed by false gospels. We must fight, brothers, for personal holiness in conformity to Christ. It will not be easy, but we must fight. Kokosai Church, your pastors, they are fighting for you in their prayers. They're fighting for you. Week after week, when the man of God gets up here and leads us in a spiritual call, uh, in a call to worship, they're fighting for you behind the scenes and seeking to understand the word of God, we're fighting for you. And seeking to understand what the culture and seeking to come alongside you and partnering with you to love on your kids and to give ways to equip you to care for them. We are fighting for you. Now this isn't just a one-time fight. On the track, you want 100, it's over. That's not what's going on here. The race doesn't just end after 10 seconds. It's an ongoing struggle. Pastors, men of God, you must keep fighting. You must keep fighting. And, you know, sometimes when I see people, I'm like, they're so golly. How do they get that way? Do they have some secret Jesus juice? They don't. It's the same spirit. But it will take discipline. It will take discipline in this fight, just like any athletic competition. Brothers, you might have to hit, uh, wake up and run your daily five miles of righteousness and godliness. You might have to hit the weight room and work out your muscles of faith and love so that you can continue to run those five miles on a consistent basis. You might have to stay hydrated and maintain your diet of steadfastness and gentleness so that your faith and love muscles don't grow weary. But know that it's worth it. Seeing our children baptized and added to the body of Christ is worth it. Preserving souls from a Christless eternity, oh, it's worth it. Seeing the body of Christ grow and flourish in a healthy way, it's worth, it's worth, it's worth fighting for. You better believe it. Pastors, but even to the dads who lead their households, how we fight, men, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to me, how we fight, how we live, it matters. And it's worth it worth it. The fourth commandment, 
given here from Paul to his son in the faith is, again in verse 12, take hold of eternal life. Paul says, flee, pursue, fight, and now take hold of eternal life. Here Paul is not commanding Timothy to get saved again, but use his hands, as it were, not to grab at money or to grab at temporary things, but to grab at something that lasts forever, namely, eternal life. Eternal life in Christ. That's the most important possession. Pastor, the most important possession that you can hold out to God's people. Eternal life. That's what matters. Not what this world offers. Timothy was to believe and receive eternal life in Christ. He was to meditate on the future hope that he has in Christ, but also to embrace the reality of eternal life now. Take hold of eternal life. Jesus in John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life. They know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And I believe Paul is telling Timothy here what he's been telling him the whole time. Embrace Jesus, Tim. Hold on to Jesus, Timmy. And to do it with both hands. You can't have eternal life in one hand and money in the other. Lay hold of Christ. In the original language, this is something that Paul was exhorting Timothy to do once. You don't take eternal life and then put it down and the next day pick it up. You have it. You hold it. You keep it. And if the man of God is to live a life faithful to the gospel, he must take hold of eternal life. Of this verse, Charles Barton said, Lay hold on eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take him to be yours. Accept him as your substitute bearing the death justly your due, and having given his life for you, now giving it to you, make the exchange. Christ took your death, take his life. He bore your ill, take his good, appropriate it, lay hold on eternal life. Amen. And this charge to Timothy Paul, gives four commands. Flee, pursue, fight, and take hold of eternal life. And now what he does in the text is he, he grounds that. These are the commands. Now, 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 now let, me, let me encourage you on why you ought to keep them. He says in verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The grounds for Timothy's obedience. First, God's calling on Timothy and Timothy's answer. Now, there are differences of thought about what Paul is referring to 
when he says, take over eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession, in the presence of many witnesses. God called Timothy to eternal life, to salvation in Christ. He also called Timothy excuse me, to the work of the ministry, to be a pastor. Timothy made a confession of faith at his baptism in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy also made a confession to defend the faith, to defend the gospel in the presence of many witnesses. Most likely referring to his pastor or nation. Which is in view here? Contextually, arguments can be made for both, but I believe Paul is trying to help his son in the faith see that Timothy ought to flee, pursue, fight, and take hold of eternal life because God's called him. God has called you, Timothy, to this lifestyle. He's called you to this life. So do it. And Timothy, in front of a bunch of people, You've picked up the phone. You've answered the call. Don't you forget. And because you did that, flee these things. Pursue these things. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. You know, God calls all, every Christian to this life. It's... it's not just for Timothy and not just for pastors. Every Christian who has been baptized and confesses Jesus is Lord agrees to, these, to this life, to flee these things and to pursue these. But how much more? How much more the man of God? The pastor whom God has called to fight for the gospel and the pastor who's accepted this call before the congregation. Pastors, God called. We answered. Flee. Pursue. Fight. Take hold of eternal life. And as if the calling of God and the answering of Timothy were not sufficient grounds for his obedience, Paul gives his son in the faith another means to help him to push him along in his obedience provides two witnesses. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unsustained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 13, I got two witnesses. God the Father in Christ Jesus. It's the same witnesses, excluding the angels, that we get from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, when Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, now the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality because of God's presence. Paul says, do these things. 
he was to keep the rules instructed in chapter 5 without prejudging. That was a sermon a few weeks back. In chapter 6, if you trace Paul's train of thought without the parenthetical statements, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to keep the commandment. The charge is to keep the commandment. Now the Greek just says commandment. There's no article in front. I believe contextually Paul is referring to the imperatives he's just given Timothy. The commandment, keep the commandment. Flee these things. Pursue these things. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. Paul is seeking to help Timothy see the sobriety of the charge. God's watching. This is not a game. Yet Paul is seeking to encourage his son to live a life of continued obedience to God. And Paul undergirds his charge in the presence of God, the Father, who gives life to all things. It's as if Paul is saying to his son, Son, the one who gives life to the very ones you are trying to protect, the flock, the ones you are trying to fight for, the one who gives the eternal life for which I told you to take hold of, in his presence, I charge you, keep the commandment. This ought to have been an encouragement to Timothy to know that the same God who gives life to all things will be with him and even now is with him as he receives the charge in this letter. Timothy is in the presence of that God. It's a heavy responsibility for Timothy, but the task is light work to the God who gives life. For Timothy, God's presence ought to have been life-giving. Fellow elders, in saints. Let me remind you of what you already know. In and of ourselves, the pastors of this church, we can't protect you. But we have the God who gives life who calls us to do the work and helps us in the work. And so we can take comfort in these us broken vessels, as our brother said earlier, the task that he's given us to do. Because he goes with us, he is with us. But Paul not only charges Timothy in the presence of God the Father, but also of Christ Jesus. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I believe this reference is to John 18, when Christ affirms to Pilate that he was the king, as Pilate suggested, and that Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. John 18, 36 says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world, If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom 
is not of this world. Every Sunday, Grace Church, your pastors ought to proclaim in any certain amount of words that Jesus is king and that his kingdom is not of this world. The love of, the mon- love of money, and temporal debates and controversies, all forms of worldliness have no place, no place in God's kingdom. This is the good confession of Christ and ought to be the good confession of every pastor who stands before you or any church you might have fellowship with. Now, Paul, by giving Timothy the charge to keep the commandment, flee, pursue, fight, lay hold of eternal life in the presence of the Father and the Son, it ought to cause, yes, a holy reverence. The Father and Son both know what I've been called to. And yet, it ought to call the sweet, cause a sweet encouragement. The Father and the Son, they both know what I've been called to. Yes. The Father who gives life loves to do what I've been called to. Lay hold of eternal life. Preach eternal life. Be faithful to the gospel that produces life. I got him on my side. And Jesus, Jesus too, made the same confession I made. In fact, I confess what he confessed. Jesus is Lord. He is king. They're the ones who are going to help me in what seems like an impossible task, this struggle, this fight. They're with me. (laughs) They're with me. I don't know about what you, but that does something to my soul. The Father and the Son, they're with us. Let's keep going. Paul exhorts his son in the faith to flee, pursue, fight, and take hold of eternal life, knowing that he, Timothy, has been called and answered the call. He gives him assurance that the Father and Son are with him. Now the question on the table, how long has he got to do this? Some, some dads might give their kids chores. How long do I got to do this chore, Dad? Is it just this week? Till I'm 18? Till I'm out of the house? How long is the man of God, Timothy, pastors to keep the commandment? Verse 14, keep the commandment unstained and flee from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, Timothy was called to flee the things of this world. He was not to take a day off. This was hard. The world is enticing, even for the pastor. Every day, Timothy was to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, excuse me, and gentleness. And at the root, every day, he was to pursue Christ to talk to him in prayer, listen to his word, meditate on his word, like that of a love letter. To trust Christ, rely on him, follow him, and keep keep following him, even when the struggle got real and it would get real. When people rejected Timothy, when people called him names, Timothy was to be gentle and lowly, like the Savior. He was to fight for the faith, always remaining faithful to the gospel, proclaiming the truth, 
and fending off lies. He was to take hold of eternal life and put it before God's people. And he was to live a life that was without stain or fault. He was to be blameless, above reproach. For how long? Until Christ comes. And to my pastors and brothers in arms, this is our call. A call that we have answered. A call that does not end until he returns. Jesus, come back, y'all. I don't know what that does to you. But it does something to me that the King of Kings is coming back. And he calls us to persevere, to keep going, to love people. To have faith that that promise that he's coming, that it's true. It's true. And I believe it. And may that, may that give us grace, pastors. May that give us grace, my beloved Grace Church, to run the race, to endure whatever comes our way, knowing that Jesus, 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 he's coming back. He's coming back. The word says that Christ shall return at the proper time. According to verse 10. We don't know the time, but we know that he's coming back. And we know what we ought to do until then. Flee these things. Pursue these things. Fight. Take hold. Take hold. Take hold of Christ. But as I read this text, if I'm being honest, it's a tall task. Considering the task, one might think about how impossible of a charge it is for Timothy, for us, to do. But Paul wants his son in the faith to not look inward, but to look upward. And so he closes with what appears to be a doxology. And Paul gives Timothy, and by extension us, a glimpse of the God who has never been seen as a way of encouragement. See, see him. Keep the commandment. Keep the commandment. Be faithful to the gospel. Paul says in the middle of verse 15, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, and my time is running out. There's only one sovereign. There's only one who rules and reigns. There's only one who is king of kings and lord of lords, who has absolute reign over everything that happens, and nothing and no one will get in his way. He is the one who is immortal, and from his immortality, he gives life. The one who never dies gives life. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is a holy God. He is holy, holy, holy. You know, we just can't go to him. Those who did in the Old Testament, it did not work out for them. 
And because of our sin, we today can't just go to God. But God in his love, through Christ's death and resurrection, he came to us. And because the debt was paid, because those of you who are now in Christ and are clothed in his righteousness, you now have access to God who dwells in unapproachable light. The God no one has ever seen or can see has manifested himself in his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we behold the son, we behold the father. Let me put a bow on it. When we behold the son, we become like him in righteousness, godliness. We have faith like he had when he entrusted himself to the Father, we love like him, are steadfast in our pursuits like he was to death, even death on the cross. And we are gentle as he was gentle. And pastors, fathers, church, may God help us as we flee, pursue, fight, and lay hold of eternal life out of obedience to God, that we might live a life of faithfulness to the gospel. And may God help us to be steadfast in our efforts until Christ returns. And if there's anybody in the room who does not know this Jesus, who you're still in your sin, oh, there's a free gift. And I want to lay it before you. As was said earlier, the wages of sin is death, but there's a free gift of God, eternal life in Christ. You can have it today. You can have it today. Would you put your trust in this sweet Jesus? Would you turn from your sins and trust him as the one who's able to make you righteous in the eyes of the holy God. Let me pray. Father, what a task that you've laid before pastors that you've called them to. And that they have answered, oh, in and of ourselves, in and of themselves, they cannot do it. Would you help them? With the prayers of the saints and the power of your spirit, enable them, push them forward to live a life that is faithful to the gospel, that would flee from the idea of believing that Christ is not enough, but that would run to Christ, pursue him, follow after him, for he indeed is enough. Oh, would you help them to fight the good fight of faith, to preserve the gospel amongst this flock. Would you help them to take hold of eternal life, to lay it, hold it out before the hearers of this people. And would you help us as a church love these men and keep entrusting them to you, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.